0: For those of you that are visiting, we've been looking over the last couple of um, months at a number of things in our basic church makeup, if you like. And uh, we, Helen, did two sessions on living in a culture of grace, what that looks like. Clive did a couple of sessions on worship, why we worship God and what that means, what that looks like. I did a couple of sessions on why I bother even being part of a church, what does church look like, why should we be part of church. And last week, I started looking at some of the things that we want to value as a church community as we go forward. Um, and I was used to the example, and I said, if people come in here, into this church community, what are they going to pick up immediately are the things that make us tick. What makes us tick as a church community? And each church is, is slightly different in how it preaches and lives out the gospel. We have a common message, but that is expressed in different ways in local church communities. And... Um, I said last week, one of the things that we want to value very highly is unity, that we are all working together for the same goal, which is to see the kingdom come, and we want to see that together, we want to go somewhere together, and so I try to take a little bit of time to unpack what that looks like, unity, how do we express that, how do we work together, and if you weren't um, here last week, if you could listen to the podcast, it would be most helpful. But what I would like to look at this morning is the second aspect of of how we want to build as a church, and that simply is a culture of honor, a culture of honor. And I'd like to look at what uh, the Bible has to say, and I'm going to use a very well-known example this morning to illustrate what I want to say to you this morning. But I would love for this church to be a church that every time we get together, the Holy Spirit can move in power, that people can be healed, saved, and delivered every time we we meet together, yeah? And I, I believe God would say this to us, if we want that with all of our hearts, then surely we should be doing all that we can to focus on the things that enable the Holy Spirit to move so that we don't hinder the Holy Spirit when He's trying to move amongst His people. Would you agree? And so unity is one of those things. And secondly, honoring God and honoring each other is one of those things that is going to create an environment where the Holy Spirit can move and can touch people and can transform people's lives. I'm convinced of that. So, I'd like to spend the next half an hour talking about what I mean by a culture of honor. All right? And here we go, from Ephesians chapter 5, the first ten verses, Paul writing to the Ephesian church, and he says this, Therefore, be imitators of God... As beloved children, walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So that's his first encouragement that we walk in love. This is what the church should look like. It should be a loving community. And then he carries on and he says, But sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness must not even be named amongst you as is proper among saints. Notice how Paul identifies the church. He says, we are saints. We are called out ones. We are ones that are set apart. We are different because of the blood of Christ over our lives. And he he continues to qualify this. He says, let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place. Out of place in what? In a loving community. But instead... Let there be thanksgiving. For you might be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And here's my focus for this morning. Therefore, do not become partners with them, And this is the sentence I want you to really get. At one time, you were darkness. At one time, you were darkness. But now, you are light in the Lord. You are light. And then he encourages us again. He says, walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, and take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So I want to start at this place this morning by saying, I think too much of the church dwells on what has been dark in our lives. Can I put it like that? The the Bible says our hearts are desperately wicked above all things, but we are now new creations. We are a new creature in Christ. And I think sometimes part of uh, the church um, it battles to make that transition from understanding that yes, we were darkness, but now we are light. We were, we were dead in our sins, but now we are new creatures in Christ. And so what I'm trying to encourage you this morning is to say this, is that we dwell and meditate also on that portion of the Scripture that says, you are light in this world. And because we are light in this world, there are certain things that flow from our hearts that are appropriate behaviors because we are now children of the light, We are no longer darkness. Do you hear what I'm saying? There's a slightly different emphasis, isn't there? If you see yourself as a child of light, then you behave in a certain way because it's appropriate for you, because the Holy Spirit is helping you to do that, and you don't dwell on what is darkness in your life and give energy to that, you give energy to what is light by the Holy Spirit in you. Are you with me? And so I want to encourage you this morning, out of that place, let us become a community that lives as children of light, okay? This is the problem that we have. Everyone's very quiet, or is it just me? It's okay. Are you all right? Are you feeling tired after the Eurovision Song Contest? This is the problem that we have, the challenge that we have living in this world, is that our society works according to rules. Would you agree? So, if you... um. If your car alarm is going off at 3 o'clock in the morning, like mine was doing last night, and I didn't get much sleep last night, I had to get up a number of times and try and fix my alarm in the middle of the evening because I knew it was not appropriate for my neighbors to be suffering my car alarm. And I was getting increasingly frustrated when I couldn't do it. There are certain things that we just know we need to do because that's how society works. Are, are you with me? We live by rules. And this also happens in society is this, is that when someone breaks the rules, we get offended, don't we? <laughs> if someone breaks the rules, you get offended. If you, are, if you are driving down the road and some moron cuts in front of you in, term, in, in your car and you nearly have an accident, there's something in you that says, that's not right. That car should not be doing that. He's breaking the rules of the road. And this, this is appropriate that we have rules in society because society needs to function and work, doesn't it? And so I'm not saying we don't need any um, of those kind of things. But this is also true that our newspapers are full of lurid stories, stories. Tabloid newspapers are full of stories of people that have broken the rules. And, and we kind of read these stories with a mixture of fascination and horror. And there's something in us that is also offended when people break the norms of society. Would you agree? That's why newspapers sell. And uh, if you live in a town like I do, any Saturday night in in Watford, um, the streets are full of people that are living lives that break the rules of society. And there are consequences for some of those people that break the rules of society in that um, they get punished according to the rules of society. Wouldn't you agree? And there's a consequence of our relationship with rules. If we break the rules... We are punished. That's how society works. And so I'm not saying that we don't need control in society, but here's what I am saying, and this is the crucial thing to realize, that we all have a relationship with rules. And the most crucial thing to understand is that without love, without understanding love, the only option that society has is to try and live life according to the confines and the rules that are set before us. That's the only option we have. And because of that, we have men and women that are appointed as judges. And what, are the, what is their uh, role? They arbitrate. They are the ones that decide when an individual breaks the rules of society, what is the appropriate action that we need to take to punish that person. And we do need the rule of law for our society to function well. But here is the most difficult tension for you and for me as Christians living in this kind of society. That everybody loves to play judge. But the Bible says that you and I are called not to judge anybody. That is a very challenging thing to live in. That is what love does. Love does not judge. Love does not pass judgment over other people. And so we have these uh, tabloid newspapers, and everyone feels horrified, but at the same time, everyone is honing their judgment skills, aren't they? Oh, I would never do that. I would never get caught doing that. I- I'm better than that. And so we have this kind of thing, that, uh, this tension in our society. And I want to say to you that for me, the real problem that we have as Christians and the particular challenge that we have as Christians is that attitude can infiltrate the church. It can subtly infiltrate the church. And if we're not careful, and we're not led by the Spirit, subtly in our hearts, we are making judgments about other people in the church community that we are not called to do, and that we're not asked to do. In fact, we're asked to do exactly the opposite by the, in the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we are required to love. We are required to love everyone who falls. We are required to love everyone who that uh, mucks up, everyone that makes a mistake. How many of you can l- raise your hands this morning and say, you've never made a mistake that, hurt, that has hurt anybody else? Anyone? Honestly? And yet we love to sit in judgment over other people, don't we? And we love to have the moral high ground and kind of just subtly let people know that we think they're fouling up and they're making a mistake. Mercy always triumphs over judgment always. And we want this place to be a merciful house. We want this place to be a place where people can find mercy, not judgment. That everyone that walks through the door that has messed up their life, in whatever way, will find a place here where they can be restored. That is the cry of our hearts. That's what we want to see. And I want to say this, it is natural to feel offended when someone does something that is despicable. It is a natural feeling. But this is what offense does to our hearts. When we are offended with other people's bad behavior, we start to withhold love from them. Have you ever noticed that? When you're offended from, with somebody else, what do you do? You start to withhold affection from them, and so that's how moods in our family, we can, we're trying to learn not to do this. But you can have a mood in the house. Why? How does a mood come? A mood comes when someone withholds their affection in the family from someone else just to let them know that they are angry with them. That's a fair reflection, isn't it? That's what, how people work. So we subtly—we don't shout necessarily, but we just subtly let people know that we are offended. So if we normally we are hugging family, so normally we hug each other. And so if you offend it, sometimes you just let the person know that you're not giving them the normal hug. We never do it, hey, my darling? We never do it. <laughs> What are you saying? You're subtly saying that that person has broken your rules and you're just letting them know that you're withholding your affection from them to let them know that you've broken their rules, your rules. And this is the logic of offense. It says, I get to withhold my love from you when you break my rules because all people who fail, all people who fall, all people who make mistakes are unworthy of love and they deserve to be punished. That's the logic of offense. In fact, I put it to you this is the way that people most punish those that they love. It's when they break their rules, they withhold their affection from them. And this is the tragedy. When we withhold affection from each other, when we withhold our love, when we withhold our uh, uh, um, friendship because we feel that we've been offended, what replaces where love was, anxiety replaces it. Fear replaces it. And the space where love was is filled by motivation of fear. Fear. And so this downward spiral continues. When we are afraid, we want to control. And our response to the sin of other people or those that have offended us is to have little controls in place in our lives that help us to feel that we are still in charge. (laughs) We're still in charge. So this happens in all families. It can happen in churches, and it can happen in society at large. There are a set of punishments that we put in place that offenders have to walk through to prove that the church or the family or the society is still in control. And when we behave like that in the church, what we reaffirm over people is that those who have made a mistake, those who have made bad decisions, are powerless to change their lives and they simply have to accept responsibility for their behavior. But the truth is, <laughs> this is exactly what Jesus came to die for. This is exactly what Jesus came to to change, that he took all of our mistakes upon himself so that we could be given a second chance and we could become new. That's exactly what Jesus came to do. The old is gone and the new is come because of Christ. This is the good news that you can change. This is the good news that I can change, that I can keep on changing as I put my faith not in myself but in him, in Jesus. That's the gospel. That's why it's such incredibly good news. And so Jesus came to introduce this radically new way into the world. And the radical good news is that you can change, and I can change. The old is gone, the new has come. You once were darkness, now you are the light of the world. That's an exact opposite. You once were darkness, now you are light. Live as children of light. And so I want to use a very well-known story to illustrate what I'm trying to say. And I would love this church increasingly to be a place that is free of legalism, that is free of rules, that genuinely is a place where people love God with all of their hearts and consequently they love each other with all of their hearts. A place that is accepting of every single kind of person, the broken, the lame, the whatever, that people can come in here and find restoration and find peace with God. I'd love to see that more and more. And I believe this church is becoming that. But I want to just use the story of David and Bathsheba to illustrate my point. David and Bathsheba. You know the story of David and Bathsheba. We can look at, we can look at it just now out of 2 Samuel 11. David was a, one of the... He was the most successful king of Israel. He lived in the old covenant, and yet he was called a man after God's heart. I always love that about, about David. He's living in the old, but he's actually, he's, he's also in the new. <laughs> he's, he's a man after God's own heart. And why is he called a man after God's own heart? Well, my personal conviction is that because he loved God more than anything else. In fact, he loved God more than the rules, actually. And we'll look at that now. And this is what I would like to illustrate this morning. In 2 Samuel 11, we read what happened, and I'm going to read it to you. If, um, I link he's not up there. If you've got your Bibles, it's 2 Samuel 11. It says this. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his servants with him, and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbath. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened early one evening when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house He saw from the roof roof, a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And they said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Aliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him. And he lay with her. Now she had been purified herself from her uncleanness. And she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and, this, and David sent, and she sent and told David, "I am pregnant." You know the story well. He has the great king of Israel making Bathsheba pregnant. But let's, let's have a look at these verses and see how the story starts. The story starts with David evading his responsibility. That's how the story starts. Kings went out to battle in the spring because in the winter months they couldn't fight. Uh, It was cold, and the the movement of their troops was curtailed by the weather. And so here in the springtime, they're waging this battle against the Ammonites, and it was kind of, they were mopping up the battle. They'd actually won most of the battle, and here... um, they were just mopping it up in the springtime. They'd already defeated the Syrians whom the Ammonites had hired against Israel. So David probably figured that he didn't need to go and finish off the job because it wasn't such an important deal and uh, it would be a pushover for the army. So he's, instead of providing leadership for his army and for, his, for the nation, he is, he's, he's, he's at home, shirking his duty. That's how the story opens. And I want to put it to you that for all of us, Evading responsibility is the first step in spiritual decline. The first step. The growing, this is what I mean, the growing feeling that we can do pretty much anything that we please, as we want to do, and that we don't have to do anything that we don't want to do. It's a kind of just an era, we live in this era of doing your own thing. And it's true that because of the gospel, we are free. <laughs> we are free. But here's the thing, you can't do just whatever you please without paying a price spiritually. That's the key. And so God has a plan for our lives. And He's laid certain things out before us that He wants us to walk in. And when we try to avoid those things with rationale or excuses, we open up a whole lot of things like like David did in the story, that weaken our will and weaken our walk with God. And so this is, this seems to be right where David is, right at the beginning of the story. And uh, I I've purposely emphasized that verse. It says, Now when evening came, David arose from his couch, or his bed, and he walked around the roof of the king's house. I want to put it to you. If you are a king ruling a nation, what on earth are you doing in bed in the afternoon when it's early evening? You've been in bed the whole day. That's the point. David has been goofing off the whole day, lying in bed... When he should be governing his people, and when he's been goofing off and lying in his bed all day, problems happen. He gets tempted. Men and women, our friends, don't lie in bed all day and goof off, and expect no temptation to come to you. Is that too harsh? So what about Bathsheba? And there's all sorts of theories about Bathsheba. Did she play a part in this? Some, some of, I've read some commentaries that suggested that she wasn't guiltless because Bathsheba should have, uh, she might not have purposefully enticed David, but she was unwise to bath, um, naked on top of the, um, the roof. She should have been more circumspect. She should have, um, she was asking for trouble. She could have easily bathed indoors. She could have done all that. But you know, even that, even that for me is like a deflection of whose problem it really was. It wasn't Bathsheba's problem, it was David's problem. And men, aren't we like that? It's always everybody else's problem, isn't it? Always everybody else's problem, never my problem. Guys? True, isn't it? It's always someone else's problem. No, no, we are called to take responsibility for our own lives and not to blame stuff on other people. And so... I have a slightly different point of view that I want to put to you this morning. I believe that, uh, that Sheba, I believe personally, she was a noble woman. Why do I say that? Because she was married to Uriah. If you read the scripture, Uriah was one of David's closest friends. He was part of the inner circle. He was one of David's mighty men. He was, he was like David's, one of his three or four closest allies. That blows my mind. That David would do that to his best friend, and I say to you, I think Bathsheba was a noble woman because she wouldn't have Uriah wouldn't have married someone who was not appropriate. He was he was a he was a, a man of integrity, as the story will show. He was an upstanding, courageous, noble man, and he married this woman, Bathsheba. And I believe this is my personal belief that she wasn't a loose woman. She might have been inappropriate in a in a bathing on top of the roof. But basically David took her to his room and I think he probably raped her. And the script is quite um, clear. It says, after she had purified herself. Why? Because it's emphasizing that she comes back later, months later, to tell him that she's pregnant. So this happens over a period of time. And look at David's response. This is a man after God's heart, Right? Look at his response. He purposefully plots to, to try and brush his sin under the carpet so that no one will know. And so what, is, what does he do? He, um, he says to Uriah, come back from the front line. Come and spend some time with your wife. Chill out. You know, you've been at the battlefront for a long time. His problem is Uriah is an integrous man. His, his problem is that Uriah has got character. He's a man who loves his troops. And so he says, I'm not going to come back and sleep with my wife and have a good time at home while my troops are still on the battlefield. No, thank you. I will not do that. And David tries a second time, and this time Uriah does come back, but he's got such integrity that he sleeps on the steps of his home. He doesn't go in to be with Bathsheba. He says, I will not do that while my friends are still fighting on the battlefield. This is an integrous man, and it's a big problem for David. And so, what does he do? He goes another level of degradation. He writes a note that he says, "Uriah, you take this note to Joab." And basically, Joab was the commander of all the of, of all the armies. And it's his own death warrant. He gets Joab to take his own death warrant back to uh, Uriah to take his own death warrant back to Joab. And basically, the note says. Joab, I want you to put Uriah on the front line where the the fighting is the fiercest and when he's in the fiercest place of fighting, you withdraw the troops. In other words, make sure that he dies. He's doing this to his best friend. One of his best friends. Can you believe it? And so that's exactly what happens. And David gets this message back from the front line which says, tell the king that the battle was very fierce and many good men were lost. And by the way, tell him, Uriah also died. It emphasizes it even more, the scripture. And David's response to all of this is, oh, well, you know what? Just tell Joab, good people die in battle. Good people die in battle. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's just the way things are in the world. Go on and take the city. And in, in his heart, he's thinking, my problem with Uriah is solved. It's Out of the way. And so he calls immediately for Bathsheba, and she comes Becomes his wife, and if you read the portion in 2 Samuel 11, a little line it just says, And this displeased God. So, everyone had he had fooled everyone except the Lord. And if you know the story, what happens? Nathan the prophet comes and he tells, after a number of months, he tells David the story. He says, There was a very, very rich man who had everything that he wanted. And there's a poor man who had one ewe lamb. And the rich man came and he stole the one ewe lamb from this man and took the ewe lamb for himself. And David is absolutely um, outraged and says, well, who's this man? I want to punish him. And Nathan says, actually, it's you, bud. This is how you've behaved. This is what you've done. But here's the thing. See, this is why David was a man (laughs) after God's own heart. Because immediately when he realizes what he's done, and he absolutely has revelation of what he's done, he falls on his face, and for seven days, he repents, he fasts, and David uh, has already been told by Nathan that the child that Bathsheba is going to is carrying will die, and so he fasts and he asks God for mercy. He says, God, please don't let this happen. But just as Nathan uh, prophesies, the child dies, and... Um, Then there's this incredible verse that just blows my mind. If you want to read with me, 2 Samuel 12, 24. 2 Samuel 12, 24. It says this, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went into her, and he lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. Doesn't that blow your mind? The Lord loved this child. This is my point. Where was the punishment to fit the crime that David had committed? Where's the punishment? According to the rules, where's the punishment for David? It's the most remarkable, remarkable story. The child does die, and that is a terrible thing. And David does have implications with his family that work out over a period of time. But he doesn't lose the kingdom. Do you remember the story of Saul? When Saul disobeyed God and didn't completely obey what God had said to um, take all the spoils of war, and uh, he disobeyed God, what happened? He lost the kingdom. Yeah, David doesn't lose the kingdom. Why? This woman that he committed adultery with has a son and God says, I love that son, Solomon. God loved him. Why is it not the same? Why doesn't David lose his kingdom like, uh, and get taken off into slavery like it happened to Israel before when they disobeyed God? Why is that not the story with David? And... Uh, I was just thinking as I preparing, how many of you would like a plottering, murdering, adulterer, or pastor? How many of you would? Because that's what David was. And yet he was the greatest king of Israel and he was a man called, man after God's own heart. It's incredible. The grace of God is incredible. So I could give you other examples in the Scripture where people are not judged according to the system of rules and they seem to get away with it. I can point you to uh, Abigail. Remember the story of Abigail? She has this husband called Nabal who's a bit of a twit. He's a bit of an idiot. And he's just very unwise and uh, he does a whole lot of stuff and um, she doesn't submit to his foolish actions. She will not submit to her husband. Ladies, Is it good to submit to a foolish husband? I think a bit naughty now, but that's a good question to consider, isn't it? Because what she she does not submit to a foolish husband. In fact, what she does is uh, the story. How it works out is that Nabel is killed, <laughs> and she ends up marrying David. How does that work? Well, what's what's that in terms of the rules? I mean, <laughs> she breaks all the rules, and yet she marries the king. How does that work? What about Peter? We looked at his incredible story over Easter. Peter, who swore three times that he would, not, uh, he would not deny Jesus, but three times he denies him before the night is out. And then we looked at that amazing, amazing picture of restoration on the beach on Re- Resurrection Sunday where Jesus serves him breakfast and three times he says to him, love my sheep, feed my sheep. He restores Peter completely. Peter broke all the rules. Peter Betrayed the Son of God to death. What is the difference between Peter and Judas? They both did the same thing. In fact, Peter did it three times. Denied him. The question is this. One more example. What about the woman caught in adultery? She had broken the rules many, many times. Many, many times. And if you know the story, Jesus doesn't even look into her face. He just writes on the floor. Won't even embarrass her. And he just simply says to her, go and sin no more. She had broken all the rules many times over, but she seems to get away with it. I'm not, I'm, I'm not emphasizing the getting away part. What I am saying is, why did God respond to these people differently? Why? Why did David and Peter get a different deal to what they really deserved? Why do some people seem to have um, a different outcome when they've made the same mistakes? And here's what I want to land on this morning. There's obviously something very different in these situations that I've tried to describe to you this morning that is really important. But it's simply this. It's not their sin. It's what they did afterwards that's more important. That's the most important. It really is about repentance. And this is what I'm trying to unpack with you this morning. Repentance is only effective... Can you hear me now? Repentance is only effective when the environment in which it works, it operates, is love. Repentance only works when the environment in which it's working is love. What do I mean? Well, this is what I mean. Remember, R.T. said this, when you forgive someone, it's a life sentence, and you have to forgive them totally. You totally let them off the hook. You totally let them off the hook. They get away with it. That's what true forgiveness is. And so, this is what I'm trying to say to you this morning, is repentance doesn't satisfy the broken rules. Yeah? In an environment, or in our lives, or for example, an environment of a church, if the environment of a church community is subtly still measured by rules, then repentance has a different meaning then repentance means this. I will forgive you when you have been reprimanded or punished for breaking the rules. That's what repentance means. It takes on a a different uh, connotation. Repentance is measured when you are prepared to take the consequence of your bad behavior. But this is the crucial thing, is that the thing that caused you to make that bad decision or caused you to make that unwise thing is never addressed in that kind of environment. And so, if we live in a rule-driven culture, the kind of uh, general attitude is this. It's good that you, you accept your punishment, but I'll never be able to trust you again because you've proven not to be trustworthy. This is what I'm discovering in my life more and more. Repentance is a gift. You know that? Repentance is a gift. God gives us that gift of repentance so that we can say sorry to Him, and because we say sorry to Him, He then restores us. To himself. This is what I'm saying to you. We can only give each other that gift by choice. I can't force you to give that gift to me. If I've offended you, the only one who can give me that gift so that I can start again with you is you. Would you agree? It is a gift. And I've found out that so many people in their lives are holding out on each other and will not extend that gift to the other person. And because they won't extend that gift to the other person, that other person cannot start again in their relationship with them. And there's a standoff all the time. Repentance is a gift. And I want to encourage you that you and I give that gift to each other all the time. Why? Because God has given it to us all the time. And we are restored to Him all the time. Our relationship with Him is stored perfectly and completely because He's extended that gift to us. He's enabled us to see that what we've done is wrong. He's enabled us to see that, that uh, we can't say sorry and He restores us completely. That same sense of what God has done for us, this is what it means to other other people. We give that same gift to everybody else. We say, I give you the liberty to start again with me. That's a remarkable church community that can do that that's not full of offense, full of people holding out in relationships, subtly not forgiving each other. That's the environment the Holy Spirit is going to move in. Amen? That's where we're going to see power. That's when we're going to see revival, when the church really is like that. And so we're all, we all know how society works, isn't it? If you break the rules, you pay the price. You do the crime, you do the time. That's how society works. My friends, my dear friends, We cannot behave like that in the church. We cannot live like that in the church. If we want the atmosphere of heaven in this church, then we cannot relate to each other as the world says we should relate. We have to relate as God relates to us, so we have to relate to each other. And so, it's not possible in a system of rules where people judge each other. And so, this is what I mean it's about how we respond after the sin. That is the crucial thing. Because you know, this is the amazing thing about David. He did, he did a terrible, terrible, manipulative, uh, thought-out thing to his best friend, and he took his wife. But after he repents, you never hear of another Bathsheba with David. Never. It's done. Dusted. I long for a church like that where people actually say, sorry, and then you never hear of another one of those situations again, which we have genuinely repented. I'm sorry this is not a very happy, clappy message today. But I I want to say to you, this is going to build this church, and this is the culture of the church. that We want this church to have this kind of culture that honors God and honors people. All right? And I'm trying to be (laughs) smiling. So this is what I mean by a culture of honor and a culture of restoration. We want this church to be a place of honor, where everyone can be restored. And I love that word. Restoration has to do, it has to do with the, the image in, in most of the uh, early translations is a, has a connotation of a monarch being restored to his rightful place. I think that's a beautiful picture for us, because that's what God does for all of us. Once we were far from him, now we are his sons, and daughters. That's what relationship with God does for us. All of us can say that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God because we've been restored through the cross in our relationship with Jesus. And I love 1 John 4.11. It says this, Jesus became propitiation for our sins. He he, he took His sins upon us. And and, and 1 John 4.11 says this, If Jesus so loved us, like that, if Jesus so loved us, we ought to love each other also. It puts it so simply, isn't it? Because Jesus has done this for us, we can live in a way that is remarkable with each other like this. And so I put it to you this morning that if we want the atmosphere of heaven to govern this church, then we have to learn to cultivate our relationship with God in love and our relationship with each other. All of our relationships. And if we can't find grace to do that, then we will not be light. We will not reflect heaven to the community. We will not reflect heaven in our families. We will just have stricter rules that offend people more quickly, and we will judge more often, and we'll become famous for being offended people. (laughs) Too much of the church is famous for being offended by everything, Truth. Offended by this, offended by that, offended by these people, offended by this. Famous, famous offended people. No, God wants us to be children of light and live like children of light. And this, I believe God gives us the key. Jesus gives us the key right here. How do we respond to sin and with what grace do we respond to sin? Love, grace, and forgiveness will bring a culture of heaven into this church. And that's what's going to truly change people. That's what's going to truly transform people and what's going to truly transform our community and our nation. That's how people will be restored, being sons and daughters of the Most High and take the position of honor that God has for them again. So, let me finish where I started. If Jesus so loved us, we ought to so love each other. You once were darkness... Now you are light in the world. Live as children of light. Amen? Stand with me. We're going to pray. Father, we just want to thank you for all that you're doing in us by the power of your spirit, and I want to pray for you this morning in particular. If you struggle with being, if you know in your own heart, and I'm going to put my hands up as well, so it's not, I'm not trying to point fingers at any, anybody, but if you know that sometimes out of offense you pass judgment on others because of the way that they've hurt you, I want you to just raise your hand this morning. And I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would empower and come. Father, I thank you for your people. I thank you, Lord, that you don't call us to carry offense. You call, call us to forgive. You call, you call us to set each other free. And so in this community, in this church, I pray, Lord, that increasingly our culture would be one of honor, honoring you, honoring each other, setting each other free. Father, we want to ask that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit. It's not, we, we so easily sometimes slip back into this, where we pass judgment on other people because they've hurt us. But I ask God that you would give us grace. I ask God as we look to you, as we look to the power of the cross, that you would come and you'd set us free at a deep, deep level in our lives. That we can live, live free from offense, free from judgment. That we truly can be light in this dark world because of what you've done in our hearts and in our lives. And so, Lord, we don't come as beggars this morning. We come honestly before you, but we come as your sons and daughters, knowing that you've loved us perfectly. We come, Lord, without anxiety, knowing that you are a faithful God, that you are faithful to forgive those who say sorry. And so, Lord, we come. We simply say this morning we are sorry that we've grieved you. We just ask for your grace that uh, you'd come and wash us once again by the blood of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for the good thing that you're doing in our midst. We thank you, Lord, for the joy that we have every time we get together. That we can worship you and respond to you. Because of your goodness and your kindness. I'm going to ask, class uh, to lead us in worship, but I, I feel like it would be good for us just to break bread this morning. And um, as you break bread this morning, why don't you just, in your own heart, your own life, just bring before God some of those things that you know have caused you offense and just let it go. Set people free. Maybe it's your, your mom and your dad. Maybe they offended you when you, you carried that for years. Maybe it's relationships that have gone sour. Maybe it's, I don't know, it could be a whole bunch of stuff for different people. We all have our stories of our lives, don't we? But God doesn't want you to carry that thing anymore. Let it go. Let it go. Give that gift whoever it is, so that they can start again in their relationship with you. Amen?